This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm an emergency critical care veterinary specialist and toxicologist. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Graham Brayshaw, who's a director of animal services and the head veterinarian at the Animal Humane Society for the Twin Cities. We'll be right back after these messages. As a veterinarian, I'll admit it, I reek at the end of a workday. I've been peed on, pooped on, puked on, and have all types of odiferous body liquids, usually from the back end, splashed on me. But I still love my veterinary patients and my own pets. But if you have a cat like me, you don't want to smell like them. As a veterinarian and cat owner, I know that nothing smells worse than a wet litter box. Luckily, Arm & Hammer has a solution. New Absorb-X cat litter made with desert dry minerals. It absorbs wetness in seconds, taking that wet odor out of the pitcher. Go to armandhammer.com bounty and get $4 off your box of quick absorbing Absorb-X and have a nice dry day. New Absorb-X from Arm & Hammer. More power to you. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Graham Brayshaw, who's the Director of Animal Services at the Animal Humane Society in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Now, Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Just so our audience knows who you are, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about where you trained, who you are, and what you do for the Animal Humane Society? Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Justine. I'm Dr. Graham Brayshaw. I am a uh work at Animal Humane Society. We have several locations around the Twin Cities in the uh, Minneapolis uh, area from Golden Valley, up in Coon Rapids, Woodbury, for those that know the uh, local geography a little bit further east. And then we have some clinics in Golden Valley and St. Paul. I was trained down in Texas. Uh, I am a Texas A&M Aggie grad, worked in private practice until about 2012, bounced all over the country, got to work in D.C., a little bit in Spokane, Washington, uh, came to the Twin Cities for a girl, and it was a wonderful time, and stayed here and loved it. And about 2012, about eight years ago, I came into the uh, shelter, uh, applied for a job there, and have loved it and stayed in animal welfare ever since. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I believe you also serve on the Board of Animal Health. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of background about what you do there and what you do in terms of public health? Sure. I was actually just replaced by a... Uh, I believe she is a chicken vet down in, as in four chickens. I know. <laughs> she is a wonderful woman, well-trained, very qualified for the position, but uh, by a, uh, a vet that works down in southern Minnesota. But no, I was uh, on the Board of Animal Health. It is a state agency that is charged with, as it would, make, as it would sound, uh, making sure that animals are uh, healthy in the state and also making sure that the animal industries follow the appropriate best practices 
Uh, it was a wonderful four years serving on the board. I learned a heck of a lot on, I'm mostly small animals, so learned a lot on the food animal and equine side of things and got to bring my expertise to the board as well. They not only oversee, oh, the uh, dairy producers, the uh, turkey producers, the, uh, uh, the things that are really prevalent in Minnesota, but they also oversee animal shelters, dog and cat breeder bill, that sort of thing. All right. I'm also excited to say that I know Dr. Graham Brayshaw, we both play ultimate Frisbee, although he's a hundred times better than me. And he's too humble to say that he's an amazing national level player. All right. So the reason why I wanted to bring you on today, today's episode of ER Vet is right now veterinary medicine has become so expensive. And I would say even for emergency surgery, it oftentimes is several thousands of dollars. So $5,000, $8,000, and it becomes expensive. And honestly, a lot of that is because the overhead, running a 24-hour facility or an ER vet, staffing people 24-7, making sure you're paying for utilities 24-7, the quality of medicine has improved dramatically where people have CAT scans and MRIs and blood transfusions and really expensive antidotes for poisoning. So veterinary medicine, in full disclosure, has become more costly. And that's one of my passions about the show for ER Vet is I'm trying to educate all our dog and cat owners out there on how they can best care for their pet to help prevent poisonings or prevent some of these trauma cases. Now, I know that there is something called low-cost vet care. And I was wondering if you could just explain, first of all, what that means. Sure. So low-cost veterinary care is trying to hit that niche of you have just your regular everyday mom and pop clinic and they have the prices they set. Uh, no one's making a huge ton of money in, uh, in veterinary medicine, especially compared to the, uh, to the human medicine world. But they're trying to hit that niche below the cost of your regular mom and pop clinics and reach people who cannot afford regular veterinary care. Uh, there was a wonderful review of access to veterinary care that was done showing that a good 40% of the population that owns animals do not come in for regular care of any sort. And the biggest reason that's quoted is cost of care, uh, the cost of getting into it. So trying to get at that group that is not coming in for regular care, and as you mentioned, trying to avoid the costs of uh, emergency medicine, one of the things that we all know and we're taught and is ingrained in us is preventative care, doing vaccines, getting early exams, catching diseases early, are so crucial and important because it's the most efficient way to prevent an issue and even to treat an issue. If you can get it early, if you can catch it or even prevent the disease from happening in the first place. So there's a lot of investment made for those trying to get care out there to get as much preventative care. So low cost clinics are usually not your full service clinic. You cannot go in and get the same great care you can get up in uh, Oakdale when it comes to an emergency that goes on, but you can get a lot of this preventative care done at a lower cost that is really focused on avoiding the big issues that, uh, that do come up. And there's not one classic model for a low-cost clinic. There are a lot of different things that have been created to try and fit that gap. Uh, vaccine clinics is one that is pretty common to see, and there's multiple different groups that put it out there. And that is just something designed of getting as many vaccines into animals as you can. Parvovirus, a nasty GI disease that I'm sure you have discussed sometime previously, is one that uh, the vaccine is almost 100% protective. It kicks in very quickly, and it's a really cheap shot compared to 
the thousands of dollars that it takes to properly treat that disease. So the more animals we can vaccinate for 15 bucks, 20 bucks here or there, the more we can prevent that disease from happening down the road. There's also a growing a group of what we call nonprofit clinics. Uh, and this really depends on the state you're in. Minnesota, the way that the professional services, the act that says how you can practice different professional services, veterinary medicine, dentistry, you name it, allows there to be nonprofit clinics, meaning that we can run as uh, myself at Animal Humane Society, we can run a clinic that is a nonprofit, meaning we do not set any prices to try and create a profit, but we also don't have to pay taxes. And that means if we're trying to break even, we can set prices at a lower point and be able to tr to provide care. Uh, what we choose to do with that clinic is we also means test, meaning that you uh, uh, need to qualify for a certain program or have an income within a certain percentage of the, uh, of the poverty line to qualify for these clinics. We do charge lower prices, but we also want to make sure we're not competing with the clinics that are out there, the mom and pop clinics that are just trying to make ends meet as well. Are there a lot of nonprofit veterinary clinics out there? Or like if you had a ballpark guess, what percentage are they compared to traditional mom and pop general practices that are out there for veterinary medicine? I believe the last time we reviewed, there are three in the whole state of Minnesota, maybe just two. Mission Animal Hospital was the first one they got going in the state. And then uh, ours, about 2016 or 2017, we incorporated it as a nonprofit veterinary clinic and started practicing. And we actually have a second clinic opening in grand total sum of seven days. So a nice busy time for us as we're trying to meet this care. But also thinking about trying to trying to hit that gap, trying to hit that group that cannot afford or does not come in for regular veterinary care. We did a survey of the number of people, a number of animals that would qualify for our means-tested services within a 10-mile radius of our new clinic opening, and it's about 400,000 people. And it's when you're looking at number of animals, it's about 300,000 animals. And that is at least 150 veterinarians worth of care to provide the regular veterinary care for those number of animals. And we are, have no designs and no ability to expand to that point. I think we have four vets right now between the two clinics to give a perspective. So trying to hit that gap is not something that just creating a clinic here or there is going to, it's going to help, but it's not going to really completely fix that problem, that gap of, uh, of getting to affordable care. You know, and I think, you know, when you guys have listened to ER Vet radio episodes before, again, we've harped on a lot of the points that Dr. Brayshaw is mentioning. So like preventative medicine, so important. And the biggest mistake I see people making is they often think, oh, my dog that I rescued from online from Craigslist or wherever, it already came with its vaccines. When in actuality, I see every single day dogs coming into the ER vet where I'll ask them how many vaccines their dog has gotten and they'll say, oh, he's up to date. I'm like, well, he's only eight weeks old. So there's no way he can physically be up to date because they need three to four vaccines every three to four weeks from five weeks of age until 14 to 20 weeks of age. So please keep in mind that one vaccine is not protective. It helps mount the immune system to respond to the first vaccine. So that's why you need the second, third, fourth vaccine. So again, so important, both Dr. Brayshaw and myself see a lot of parvovirus. And I equate that to you getting cholera nowadays. It's super rare, but you die of dehydration. You die from vomiting and diarrhea. And the prognosis is excellent, 80 to 90% with veterinary medicine and veterinary care, but it can be really expensive. And I'm gonna say it's about $1,000 a day in the veterinary ER. 
And most animals need to be hospitalized with parvovirus for four to five nights. So it can be really costly. And instead, you can prevent that with vaccination. It's doing things like saving a couple of dollars a day, putting it in a separate savings account so you can make sure that you have an emergency fund for your pet. It's talking to your veterinarian about considering pet insurance, keeping garbage out of reach so your dog doesn't get into it, making sure you're not feeding your dog anything poisonous, making sure you're pet proofing so your cat doesn't get into lilies or your dog doesn't get into human prescription medication. It's making sure to leash walk your dog so they don't get hit by a car or keeping your cat indoors so they don't run out and get hit. So a lot of things you can do to prevent those costly visits to your veterinarian or an ER veterinarian. We'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. I have a chocolate cocker spaniel named Lady and a blackmouth cur, and it's a lot of responsibility owning a dog. My dogs don't have any health problems because they're eating what they need to eat. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Dynavite is like pouring a multivitamin right onto their food. We'll be scooping our Dynavite and then squirting the liquor chops and the fish oil. They start salivating. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. I get my Dynavite at D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. As a dog owner and veterinarian, I spoil my own dog, Milo. Not only does he get to sleep on my bed, but he gets his pick of treats whenever we go to the pet store. I want to take great care of him as he pays it back tenfold in loyalty and affection. I want to keep him as happy and healthy as possible. That's why I like to give him a dental treat that offers more. Daily Dose is a two-in-one dual-benefit dog chew that supports dental hygiene and full-body health. With Daily Dose, your dog gets a daily dental scrub and powerful supplements to help with the biggest health concerns facing our dogs. Daily Dose was developed by veterinarians to be simple to use and super effective. Plus, dogs love the taste. It comes in four types, available for joint, skin, heart health, or calming. What I like about them, they have ingredients that I'd recommend as a veterinarian, and they're made in the USA. To help keep your dog happier and healthier, try Daily Dose, because one chew a day may keep your veterinarian away. Visit yourpetsdailydose.com to save $3 on your first bag with promo code ERVET. That's E-R-V-E-T. It's more than a treat. It's a treatment. One chew a day for happier, healthier dog ears. Are you listening to this right now with a cell phone clenched between your teeth as you frantically flip pages on your paper calendars? Or are you a new breed of groomer, bred for speed and efficiency of movement? 123 Pet Software automates your communications, doing the reminding, confirming, thanking, and marketing for you. 123 Pet centralizes your schedule, employees, clients, inventory, and more. 123 Pet is the business management software you need. Start minding your business today. Visit 123petsoftware.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Now, Dr. Brayshaw, I did want to talk to you since you 
head the Animal Humane Society, what do people do if they have to surrender an animal to a shelter? Obviously, right now, I know with for the past six months with COVID, a lot of animals were being adopted or fostered. But I always warn people, you have to be prepared for the cost of care. But it is okay if you need to surrender a pet because of situations. Now, there's a lot of confusion and stigma around surrendering an animal, and there doesn't need to be. So do you mind just talking to us about what it's like, how we go about the surrender process if absolutely necessary? Sure, I would love to. And you're right, there is way too much stigma around having to surrender an animal there with our shelter, many shelters, rescue groups. We've tried to build as good a support network as we can to make sure that animals get the care they need, they get taken care of, and end up in as many loving homes as we can. And it actually can be very difficult, and I guess understandably difficult, but it also can be pretty brave to sit there and be introspective and say, I know that my animal has more needs than I can provide for it. And I need to get this animal somewhere where it can get the care that it needs. For our shelter specifically, we have what's called a surrender by appointment process. We are an open admission shelter. We'll take any animal in any condition with any needs and uh, do our best to try and help it. But we do to make sure that we have the resources available the same way you would schedule an appointment to go into your veterinarian. We schedule our appointments for animals coming into shelter. Uh, It makes sure that when your animal arrives, we have the vets, the techs, the staff available to uh, provide the care and to make sure we also have the kennel space for them to be able to be housed appropriately. We want to, their stay in shelter to be as pleasant as possible and as short as possible to be able to get into a home as we can. So if you do have an animal that, that you found could be a stray or an animal that something with your life circumstances, uh, you're unable to keep them. Uh, you just need to give us a call, and that's the right way to start with pretty much any animal welfare organization, any shelter and you rescue you work with. You give them a call, you find out the specifics of their process. For us, we would go through a little questionnaire of what is your animal like, what do they need, what the situation is, and get an appointment for getting them in. The other nice thing that we do offer through our pet helpline, we refer to it, that's our call center that takes all of our uh, intake and appointment calls for the shelter, is we also look at, are there resources out there? I just talked about low-cost clinics, but you know, if it's lack of access to food, there are dog and cat food banks. You know, what can we do to try and even keep their animal in your home? And if that is something we can do, great, we want to help. If not, then we do schedule an appointment for them coming in. And people do feel bad. This is an animal they love, but it is something that do know that our shelter, but any shelter out there, there are shelters that can have a bad stigma around them. There's the uh, term no kill and kill shelters that gets thrown around way too much, but we will take any animal in and we will try and get them a home as best we can. But it's not just us. Any shelter really does try and do the best they can to help the most animals, to get them in homes, to help them all or help as many as we can. And so do know that wherever you do take them, they're going to be cared for. They are going to be loved. And we're going to try and get them into a uh, to a home as best they can. And it's the hard but the brave thing to sometimes make that happen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you do also. Oh, now, you did talk about no kill. What exactly yes. does that mean when it comes to shelter medicine? That is a great question and a very, uh, could be its own subject for as long as you want to talk about it. There is a movement called the no-kill movement that got started, oh, probably a good 15, 20 years ago at least now, that was a change in the approach to animal sheltering. 
good idea, but uh, a little more punitive, a little more blame than needs to be thrown around when it got started. Animal shelters used to have very low live release rates. Live release rate is a term we look at of how many animals come into a shelter and then how many animals get adopted, get a, uh, get a live outcome versus how many have to be euthanized. Animal overpopulation is still an issue. Not as big of an issue as it was 10, 20 years ago, but there were shelters and Animal Humane Society included that ended up euthanizing 30, 40 percent of the cats that came into shelter of oh, 15, 20 years ago. And the reason that that had to happen was you can't just house cats upon cats upon cats. It's inhumane just to house animals. And there were so many more cats that needed homes than there were homes for those cats to be in. And that's why, speaking of preventative medicine, things like spay-neuter are so important to try and allow us to keep the animal population uh, at, a, uh, uh, at a level where we have as many cats and dogs as we, uh, as we have homes. But something that came up during this as people started to look at shelters and what shelters did was an, a shelter that would have to euthanize for space. There are shelters that are so full, they have so many animals coming in, they do not have a place to house in animals. They have had to make those very tough decisions to euthanize an animal because it frees up a space for another animal coming in that they can get in a home. They definitely try and make sure that the euthanasia decisions are for those that are older, sick, may uh, maybe nearing end of life to allow a space for a puppy or a kitten to uh, to get into a house, but it's a it's a really tough decision that a lot of shelter workers have have had to make. And the idea of no kill is we are never going to euthanize an animal for time in shelter for space. We are only going to do it the same way as if it was your own animal you had at home and you were making a euthanasia decision. And it sounds great, but the reality of it is if you do that, you are just housing more and more animals and overcrowding and overcrowding and basically turning shelters into hoarding situations, which is its own uh, its own issue. So the idea of the no-kill movement is laudable. It's, it, it's a great idea. We'd never want to euthanize unless it's the same way as if that animal was in a home. However, it in practicality is undoable in some places without literally hoarding animals. So there really is a balance between the use of euthanasia in a shelter and trying to do the best you can for for every individual animal. We are incredibly lucky in the Twin Cities. We have a hugely engaged population that wants to adopt animals. We haven't had to euthanize for time or space for, for over a decade with the progress locally, but we do actually bring animals in from other states, from shelters that are so overrun with overpopulation that they still have to make those decisions. And we all want to try and get things better. We want to improve those situations. And the kill versus no kill debate is unfortunately one that really punitively approaches that subject as opposed to tries to really bring everybody together to support and try and help and make the best situation we can in the shelter environment. Thank you. Such amazing information. You know, I say I agree with you. Dr. Brayshaw and I are both based out of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And I know people across the United States, across the world, listen to ER Vet. But I always say Minnesotans are so animal friendly. Like they are very compliant. They spay, they neuter, there's very little pet overpopulation, but that's not always the case in other areas. So before we leave, I just wanted to see if you could leave us with a couple of tips. What can we do to be responsible pet owners and to help out our local animal rescue group or animal humane society? 
ah, there are always a need for fosters. If you can do any one thing to help your local animal welfare community, it is being willing to be a foster home, a temporary home for a dog or cat, heck, even a guinea pig or a mouse that may need to stay just for a few days or for a week or maybe two as they get moved towards their forever home. You can also think of it if you're in the market for a new animal yourself as a nice no-risk trial of that animal in your house too to see how uh, how they're going to do. But every group I know, ourselves included, always need a foster home. And all of this is a nonprofit industry. It is a nonprofit groups. So any donations always help. And food can definitely help. Litter can help. Most of the groups have really low-cost deals with a lot of Purina and various other food companies out there. So actually, a financial donation goes even longer than a stuff donation because they can go get a bag of food actually cheaper than you. You can buy a bag of food and give it to them. So your time with fostering, your space with fostering, and any sort of donate to your local shelter is or local rescue group is going to go a long way towards helping more animals and keeping uh, animals actually in homes and getting them into homes. Wonderful. Such fantastic information. Dr. Brayshaw, thank you again for joining us for today's show. We really appreciate all the information. Again, the biggest takeaways, if you are in a scenario where you feel like you financially, mentally can't care for a pet appropriately, please. There's no stigma with surrendering an animal. We want to make sure that animal gets the right care. And please be aware there's always resources out there. Obviously, we as veterinary professionals want you to embrace and keep your pet as long as possible. And the best ways are through preventative care. Talk to your veterinarian, reach out to low-cost clinics around you or vaccine clinics to make sure that your dog and cat are appropriately vaccinated. They're on heartworm or flea or tick medication or the medications that they need specifically for your area. Making sure to pet-proof, to crate train, to obedience train, all these things really help keep your pet safer. Dr. Brayshaw, thank you again so much for being on today's show. Oh, thanks for having me, Justine. It was great to chat. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook or Instagram at drjustinelee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, and we want to thank Dr. Graham Brayshaw and Mark Winter, our producer, for making the show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.